Welcome to the Pure Flix Podcast, a show brought to you by PureFlix.com. PureFlix.com, the faith, family, and fun video streaming service. Get ready for uplifting news, scripture, movie reviews, and interviews with some of your favorite actors, authors, and pastors. Let's get started. Hey, what's going on? It's Billy Hollowell, and welcome to the Pure Flix Podcast. I am excited today. We've got two interviews for you. We have a segment from our Answering Atheist talk show. Really interesting because it dives into the biggest critiques of the Bible, the things that the Bible's biggest critics, a lot of atheists, will say about Scripture, about what's in Scripture, responses to those critiques from EZ's Wayne from Living Water. So we'll have that later on in the show. But at the start of the show, we're actually going to be welcoming Mark Maxwell. He is an entertainment attorney who has three decades of experience working as a lawyer in the entertainment field. And it's really interesting because he's dealt a lot in music. That's been where his experience is. And Mark, again, he's a lawyer, right? There are a lot of preconceived notions that people have, prejudgments that they have about lawyers maybe or about people who work in entertainment. But the crazy thing and the amazing thing about Mark and his story is that Mark is a Christian. He has a book that is called Networking Kills, Success Through Serving. And if that title gives you any indication, any clue, it's really this amazing worldview of how we reach success, how culture tells us all the wrong things about success, but how the Bible guides us in the right way. And Mark, in his practice, he follows that, right? He follows relationship building and loving others. And so I want to dive into this because it's not just something that is for people working in entertainment. It's something that any of us can really adapt and use in our own lives, no matter where we are working or where we are serving. So with no further ado, I want to welcome Mark to the show right now. Hey, Mark, how's it going today? I'm doing great, Billy. So you have had a very interesting career as an entertainment lawyer and a professor, and uh, but but one of the things I like about your background is the fact that you approach success from sort of a faith lens, and you've written a book, Networking Kills, and I want to talk through that, but I want to start as somebody who's been able to find success um, in culture today, what when you look at culture and what culture values, what is it that most concerns you about how we teach success? Well, I think the biggest concern that that I've been seeing is that so much of success is is sort of pushed uh, on college students, on young executives, on entrepreneurs. It can be found through networking, and I think that that seems to be the big the big rule, the big uh, push, and, and I see it being a lot of, putting a lot of pressure on, on, on young people, young business people. I see it giving, getting them off track. It, I see them building inauthentic relationships and, and really focusing more on, on exploiting people instead of giving and serving people. Yeah, and that and that's interesting because I do think there's a level of pressure, and, and obviously – in America, you know, we, we're all about, you know, work hard and, you know, make as much money as you can. When you look at what goes on in culture and how we push people towards it, the pressure that I have felt even and how you measure yourself, I, I think there's – and maybe you could speak to this, but in my mind there seems to be this sometimes unhealthy um, mixture of what you do for business and who you are as a person becoming one. And that seems like it can get very dangerous for, for young people and adults alike. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I think 
to me, I always want to, my lens is, you know, really through the gospel, and I, and I want to view, well, what, what does the Bible teach? And I think the Bible applies to every area of our life, and, and, gospel, and, and the gospel is that, you know, Jesus taught that if you, if you want to be great, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be successful, it's about laying down your life for others. It's about serving others. And the, the whole networking message, whether you're looking at a creative who's trying to build their uh, social media platform with you know likes and views and followers, or if you're an entrepreneur starting a business, the, the message the culture says is you got to go out there and take. You you got to go out there and use. Whereas Christ taught us that you go out there and you give and you serve and you lay down your life generously for others. And so I think those two worldviews are are really at odds. And and that's sort of the the message I've been bringing to a lot of students the last few years and saying. They are at odds, and let's let's begin to say let's look at this from a biblical view and really decide what is what does Christ teach us, and how do we apply that to building a business, building our creative opportunities. And it is interesting because when we teach people to network, you know, it's not really about forming relationships for the purpose of doing what you just said, which is serving others, loving others. It's it's for the purpose of advancing ourselves, and and the Bible is pretty clear. And I and until I'm going to be honest with you, until sort of sitting down to talk to prepare for this interview. I didn't really think of networking in this in this way, but that we we are supposed to treat everybody equally, whether it's somebody that that society would say is on the bottom of the totem pole or on the top. We're not supposed to gravitate and, and treat the people on the top better. But yet networking almost positions us in a place where we are doing that right, where we are actually treating someone nicer because they can help us and we're, we're elevating them. Correct. Exactly. Yeah, and and I think a lot of it's a hard issue because the thing I'll say to people is I'm not I'm not trying to instruct students stay home, don't get out there, don't connect with right, people. Right. But it's about your heart. It's about why are you going to this event? Why are you going to this convention? Why are you going to this opportunity? Are you going for you, or are you going to make a difference in other people's lives? And so I think it's always a matter of checking out what is your motivation, and because we need we need others, we need collaboration, we need others to actually be fruitful in all areas of life. So it's it's really saying. What, what is my motive here? And, and, and then if, if my motive is to, is to really give to others, everything changes. And, and God really blesses that, not only in their lives, but in our lives as well. So we, we spoke a little bit about this, but what is it that Jesus tells us about true success? Because and before you answer, I, I think we're, we struggle with this in culture. You know, that, that thing I just mentioned about mixing together who we are with what we do and putting our value in that. But what, when we look at the Bible, what are the lessons we walk away with on what we should be seeing success as? Well, you know, obviously the big one I, I just mentioned, I think is, you know, Christ says if you want to be great, if you want to be successful, it's about becoming a servant. You know, James and John came to him with, with their mom, and, you know, she was the ultimate kind of stage mom saying, hey, I want my two teenage sons to be on your right and on your left. And, and Christ said, I don't think you know what you're asking. But if you want to be great, it's about laying down your life for others. And, you know, and, and Paul teaches us that, you know, the entire concept of the word is really summed up in one principle, and that's loving others as we love ourselves. And so those are the kinds of ways that we need to always approach our life and say, how do I build my business with that sort of view? How do I treat others? How do I begin to make my life focused on others and instead of focused on myself. I think a lot of us, we, you know, we say, what is my dream? What do I want to accomplish? And, and then we ask God to bless what we're doing. And I think the, the biblical view is to say, 
what is God blessing? And that's the thing that I want to do. How am I going to serve others? And begin to sort of set our life and our, our purposes and business and relationships on what he's already doing and what he's calling us to do as opposed to whatever our, our dream. His dreams are always bigger for, bigger and better, and, and they're going to be more fruitful. Um, our dreams are always small and, and, and self-focused. And so I think it's a different way of approaching uh, our long-term plan and just how we walk that out daily as we're building relationships with people. Now, the obvious question as an entertainment lawyer, and I think it's interesting, you work in a field where people outside might say, oh, gosh, how do you how did you get into that field? A, but how do you live that your life out and your faith life out in, a, in an arena which would seem there are a lot of temptations to be motivated by greed and to act in a way? Not that lawyers all do this, but, you know, just the, the preconceived notion that people have of certain fields. Like, how do you how do you find that balance, you know, in what you do? Yeah, you know, a couple things, you know, and, and God really began to speak this to me a few years ago. I went to a convention, a big music convention in, in Austin, Texas, for the sole purpose of gaining new clients. And I, I met people all week, handed out business cards, spent a lot of money on hotels and travel, and, and, and believed this was going to further promote my business. I came back, waited for the phone to ring, crickets, nothing. <laughs> and... And it was one of those moments where God said, first off, did you, did you pray about this trip before you went? No, sir, I, I didn't. And, and while you were there, you met a lot of people. You shook a lot of hands. But did you really care for people that were broken and hurting? There was a lot of people that really needed the gospel, that really needed just life and love. And all you did was hand out business cards. What, what was that about? And it was, like, it was one of those moments where I felt like God really began to show me that Success and, 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 and fruitfulness in my law practice has to start with the care and service of others, you know. And, and I think as I begin to, you know, invest deeply into my clients, you know, those, those are the people that are going to help me build my business because they're, they're going to tell other people about the work that I do. You know, as I care and serve others as opposed to promoting myself, that's the best marketing that I can, that I can, I can do as I pray for clients as I encourage them, as I go 120% in the work that I do for them, they're going to share the message of my work. And so part of it is I think it's, it's serving well, it's being generous, it's giving away, it's giving away free legal time sometimes. You know, it's, it's, it's investing in people with generosity and humility. And that's really the way you see fruitfulness come in your life. Yeah, and, and you have spoken a little bit uh, to this already, but this notion of changing the world one person at a time, um, and it would seem that doing that requires of us that we put ourselves to the side a little bit, and that's what you're saying here, you know, giving your time, giving of yourself, um, and, and that is not the, the message in America that we did, in culture that we, the message right now especially, it seems to be, it's all about you, start with yourself, do what makes you feel good, and and move from there. But this is really a polar opposite way of thinking that you serve others and that through that service you form relationships. Through those relationships you can make a change and you can find true success. Um, so, so when we talk about changing the world one person at a time, are there any pieces of advice you could give to people, um, even just from a 30,000-foot level, of how they can start doing that? If, this is, if they're kind of looking at their life and they're thinking, man, I've, been, I've not been looking the right way for success – you know, how can I take a step forward? What would you say to them? 
Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and I think we all get, we all have these big lofty things we want to see God accomplish through our life. You know, these big dreams He's put in us, uh, careers, you know, ministry, the things that we're 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 doing, and and sometimes that can feel overwhelming. Like, how do I ever get there? You know, I don't I don't have the resources. I don't have the education. I don't have the I don't have the network of people, whatever it is that holds you back. And, and I just have found that you, you start small, and, 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 and starting small is, is really big. You know, I, I, one of the things I do when I step into the classroom each semester with, with my students, I begin to pray for them before that first day. I begin to study their names, their backgrounds. And then when I step into the classroom that first week, I'm really looking them in the eyes, and, and I'm asking God to begin to highlight different ones that I'm really supposed to be very intentional and in, in, in going after. You know, and then a lot of times I'll, I'll, you know, midway through a semester, I'll, I'll be talking to my wife and just like, gosh, I want to have more impact on these students this semester. What, you know, you feel like you want to see just dramatic change and dramatic opportunities in their lives. And my wife always gets in my face and reminds me, which is so good. She says, Mark. It's one student at a time. It's one person at a time. I'm like, you're right, you're right. And so I, I think it's beginning to really live our life that way because we, we have these big dreams, but ultimately to really see change, it starts. It's one at a time. And that investment, it multiplies. And, yeah. and, and that's really where you make a difference in the world is those relationships. And, and to me, that's, as a professor, that's the big payoff too. When all of a sudden you, you're in the classroom and then ultimately finding a student says, hey, I really want to connect with you, and you have that coffee, and then you really go deep uh, into conversation in their life and just really trying to meet their needs. And that's the payoff. And, and I think that's the way we all need to live um, and looking for those opportunities. And it really does. It, it does. It, it, small ultimately becomes big. It begins to change the world one person at a time. Well, Mark, this has been phenomenal. Where can people go if they want to find out more information on you or grab copies of Networking Kills? Oh, thanks. Well, my website is markhmaxwell.com, and Networking Kills is available on Amazon, paperback, ebook, uh, audiobook, and, and it can be found right there. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be with you. And that was Mark Maxwell. I love Mark's message. I think it's convicting for all of us that if we're going to live our faith out, that we need to do that consistently, whether we're doing it with our friends and family or whether we're looking for jobs. You know, the way we look at people who are in positions of power, the way we treat them, the way we seek them out, the whole net notion of networking, um, it's interesting. If our motivation is off kilter, if our motivation is to network only to use somebody to get into a position, is that aligning with the gospel? I think that's a really telling response, whatever the response to that answer is in our own lives, but I think it's it's a convicting message for us to think about as we live our life out as Christians, as people who search for jobs and, and look to make friendships um, and, and look to really find the positions that fit us the best. How are we treating the people who are, you know, quote-unquote, above us in those positions, who can give us something? Are we only networking with them to use them? Um, so, so I appreciate Mark's message. You can check out Networking Kills over at Amazon or wherever books are sold. Now, I want to transition here to talk about the Pure Flix Insider. That's our blog. I mention this almost every episode that you guys need to get over there, that you need to read the Pure Flix Insider. It is so much fun to put together. We have Bible verse lists. We have pieces of advice for you based on Scripture. We have interviews with great people. There is so much over on the Insider. 
one of the recent articles that we wrote was titled Jesus's Five Most Amazing Miracles. I'm not going to spoil the miracles, but what that piece does is it dives in uh, to five of the things that Jesus did in the Bible that were absolutely incredible. And the first thing we focus on is his first miracle, turning water into wine. We see in John 2, 1 through 11, that Christ performs this first miracle, and he does it at a wedding in Cana. Now, it's interesting because this is Jesus's first miracle, and of course, that's noteworthy, but it's also the nature of it. It's after the wine runs out, you see Mary, Jesus's mom, informing him about that situation, and he sort of seems reluctant at first, but then he tells the servants to fill the jugs with water, and John 2.11 tells us the impact of this first miracle. That verse reads, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So it's fascinating to me, though, because outside of the noteworthiness of it on that regard, it also shows that Jesus cares, God cares about anything that we're going through. You know, this seems like a small issue at a wedding, and of course it was probably a major deal culturally to run out of wine, but this small issue, Jesus steps in and fixes it, and I think he cares about all of the things, I don't think, I know, that we're facing in our lives. And so it's always sort of shown me that, that this this miracle that we love to talk about is much more sweeping and broad um, in that it, it tells us there's a loving God who cares about what we face. And so you can head over to insider.pureflix.com to read that story. There are four other amazing miracles you don't want to miss. We'll be right back with more of the PureFlix podcast. We'll be right back with more of the Pure Flix podcast. Did you know you can access thousands of entertaining and inspiring faith and family friendly TV shows, movies, and original series? It's simple. Just log on to pureflix.com right now to start your free one month trial. From kids content to some of the most uplifting films, We've got your entire family covered. Sign up today. And we're back with more of the Pure Flix podcast. Welcome back to the Pure Flix podcast. I'm Billy Hollowell. Now we are rounding out to the second half of our show here. And this part of the show I'm really excited about because we did a series of interviews. We have a show called Answering Atheists. It's a an offshoot of Pure Talk, our talk show. You can watch that over at facebook.com backslash pureflix. But one of the recent episodes of Answering Atheists, episode seven, it featured Emil E.Z. Zwain. He's with Living Waters, super interesting guy. And as an apologist, somebody who is frequently asked very tough questions about Christianity. And so I threw a lot of very heavy questions at him, the things that atheists will say about the Bible, right? Critique about different issues that are controversial that are presented in the scriptures. And so we sat down with EZ and kind of just threw questions out, let him respond to those. And so the episode was great, but we want to share that with you here on the Pure Flix podcast. So let's roll our interview with EZ Swain. How you doing? Doing great. Great to be here with you, looking out and seeing this view and just getting blown away again. It, you know, it doesn't, it's so cool that it doesn't look it real. It doesn't look real. And I'll <laughs> tell you, I've seen it a number of times, but... Each time I see it, it's like seeing it for the first it's time. It's like a I painting. Just get blown away. I know. Yeah, it's Amazing. incredible inside too. I mean, that's the thing. The yeah. outside is one thing. You get in there, it's a whole other. Mind right? blowing. 
So, so you, you have this incredible story, and I've had a chance to tell this story before and talk to you about it, but one of the things when we talk about atheism and when I interact with atheists, they often ask for evidence. You know, what's the evidence of belief? And you, know, you can have that debate all day long, but the thing for me that I've always found the most compelling are the stories of people like you who go from point A to point Z. Something right. happens in their life, and it's an encounter, that yeah. thing with, with Christ. And so I guess we, we could start at the beginning of your story if you want to just take us through your sure. testimony. Yeah. Well, you know, years ago, I summed up my testimony in this little verse, and it goes like this. I once was but a lump of coal upon a heap of mire, yet Jesus Christ redeemed my soul and saved me from the fire. So that's my testimony in a nutshell, basically. Uh, I once was blind, uh, but now I see. I was lost, now I'm found. I was born in Lebanon back in 1975, and my family immigrated to the U.S. in 1980. And you know, growing up in a war-torn country, I had this little chip on my shoulder from the outset. So I'm in this new culture, don't speak the language, don't know uh, how to conduct myself really in this new sort of dynamic. And so even from kindergarten, I was a little rebel. I was uh, stealing from little cubby holes, I was getting in fights, and, and just really going down the wrong road. I had a little reformation when I was about eight years old. I did my first Holy Communion in the Catholic Church and thought, now I'm gonna be a good kid. I'm going to live the good life. I made my long list of do's and don'ts, things I'd always do, things I'd always avoid. But as I started to progress through the stages of adolescence and then into junior high, high school, uh, that long list of do's and don'ts became a distant memory. Uh, the sin nature was radically manifesting itself in me. I, I was the poster boy for the sin nature. If there was any doubt the sin nature existed, I was living proof. And so by the time I had hit high school, things really started to spiral out of control. Uh, I had a hunger for popularity, a hunger for fame. At that time, uh, I was my class president, but I didn't do it because I was concerned that our class needed good leadership. I just wanted to you sit wanted on the, the throne and rule. Exactly. Yeah. I wanted to be king easy, you know. <laughs> uh, but again, being after the wrong things, I started to get into fights and cause trouble and uh, really have a hard time with uh, just teachers and things like that. And so by the end of that freshman year, I was expelled from my first high school. Wow. Sent to my second high school my sophomore year, and at this time, believe it or not, I was a rap artist. Uh, I had uh, gotten connected with some of the top producers in the industry who produces some of the, produce some of the top artists in the industry. And so at 15 years old, I had my artist-producer contract signed. I was on my way to the big time, and yet uh, I, I, I had this uh, rebellious streak in me to where power was important. So at that second school I was at, by the end of that sophomore year, I had now become not only uh, a guy who was kicked out of two high schools, but I had become a gang member with the Crips. And it all culminated one day when I tried to commit suicide uh, in front of my family because of where I was. You know, it looked like I had it together on the outside, but internally I was falling apart. I was uh, battling my own demons, so to speak, as a sin nature was overtaking me in every way. And so, in the midst of all that, a good friend of mine invited me to an event called uh, the Harvest Crusade. I went with him. Greg Laurie. That's right. <laughs> went with him that night and almost didn't go. You know, I was uh, at home, told my mom, I'm going to some Christian thing with my friend tonight. She said, yeah, right, you liar. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is the first time in my life I tell her the truth. <laughs> She's not believing me. And so, anyhow, my friend gets there. I was really upset and angry. I was going to go and take off and do what my mom thought I was going to do. I was going to go drink and party and... But I get in my friend's car, we drive over to the crusade, and I remember I 
get out of the car. I'm walking in. I'm still angry, but I walk in and I look around. I see this amphitheater filled with people, over 20,000 people there that night. And as I was sitting there and the worship started and I'm looking around, I'm seeing these people worshiping God, looking up toward the heavens, raising their hands. And I thought, man, these guys are acting as if though God is like here or something. <laughs> Little did I know he was, you know. And so I remember Greg Laurie got up and he began to preach the gospel. And it's the first time in my life that I understood the cross. You know, I grew up, like I said, going to church all my life, and I'd see Jesus on that crucifix, but I never understood the significance of it. And suddenly I came face to face with the reality of my sinfulness. Because, you know, we as people compare ourselves to others often. The guy smoking weed thinks he's okay uh, because he's comparing himself to the guy who slams heroin. Right. The guy who slams heroin says, hey, I'm a good guy. At least I'm not hurting anyone. He's a rapist. The rapist will point to the murderer. Even the murderer will say, hey, at least I'm not like Adolf Hitler or Mussolini right. who murdered millions of people. But I, I came to realize, man, God's going to judge me by his own standard. I violated his holy law. Uh, by that standard, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. If I've looked with lust, I'm an adulterer. If I've had unjust anger or hatred in my heart, I'm considered a murderer. And I'm in big trouble. I'm not just this good guy because I haven't done what other people have done. And I owe a debt to justice. And then when he preached the gospel that Christ came, died for my sins, took my place on the cross, rose again on the third day, and he was willing to save me as a free gift of his grace. That's what blew my mind, that I could know there and then that I was forgiven of my sins and that I had everlasting life because of what Christ did, that he would impute to me his perfect righteousness apart from anything that I could ever do. And so when that invitation was given, I was probably the first person in that place to jump up. I ran forward, cried out. Was your out. friend shocked? My friend was shocked. Uh, he, you know, wasn't expecting that was going to happen. And so when he saw me respond, he was blown away. And I'll tell you, Billy, it was instantaneous, not days or hours or minutes or seconds later. It was radical transformation. Like the Bible says, you know, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become So new. you went from all of those things, the muck and the, you know, the, the gang, all of that. Yeah. Instantly realizing it's wrong. And do you think you knew in your heart, you know, even before that what you were doing was wrong? Sure. Or? I knew it was wrong, but again, I downplayed it because I would compare myself right. to others. But, but I came face changed. to face with the severity of my sin, but then I was just absolutely blown away by the grace of God, that, that though I was such a sinner, though I was such a wretch who was justly deserving of God's wrath, who, who truly deserved God's judgment in hell forever, that God's love was so great, he was willing to become a part of his creation and then take my place on that cross and endure the wrath of God that I deserved and to shed his blood so that I can have forgiveness of sins. And so you change instantaneously. And this is the proof that I talk about. I mean, millions upon millions of people having the same story or a similar story, things you can't even imagine, and they change and they and they are new people entirely. Yeah. And so you have you encounter these atheists who are like, well, where's your evidence? It's like, well, hello. I mean, look <laughs> around you, you if, yeah. when you hear these stories and, and they will dismiss that. And, you know, and this kind of leads us into some of the, the things, you know, the gotcha questions sure. that atheists will have, yeah. right? And and one of those gotcha questions is, you know, slavery, right? So right. we get into this issue of slavery. Well, the Bible endorses slavery, and they start to pull out verses and, sure. you, know, you know, obey your masters and all of that. Can you speak to that at all? Sure, I'd love to speak to that. Well, you know, one of the first questions I like to ask atheists who are questioning me on moral issues, especially those in the Bible, is, first of all, do you believe in moral absolutes? And 
if you're a true atheist, you're going to say, no, of course not. Uh, morality is relative, and it's determined by the individual, or it's determined by society. And so when they respond that way, I say, then what's the problem with slavery? Why do you have such a problem with slavery if morality is relative and it's dependent on the individual or the society? Well, then they'll go to, well, it's society. Our society has determined that. Well, yeah, well, what about when society uh, functioned in a way that the majority said that slavery was acceptable? Well, what about that? Would that not make then those abolitionists who rose up and said, we need to do away with slavery, wouldn't that make them immoral because now they're at odds with the social norm. They have a hard time with that, right? And, I, and let me just say this, Billy, I love atheists. Atheists oftentimes think that Christians hate them and we've got an ax to grind. The furthest thing from the truth, right? I mean, we love atheists and we want them to come to the knowledge of the truth just as God has brought us to it. So that's my response on that front. But, but if we were to dive deeper into it and answer it uh, in connection with, with, with what Scripture teaches, first of all, it's important to understand that at, at the very bare minimum, let's say that uh, slavery wasn't ideal, but uh, it, it, it did exist and, and we see it in the Bible. First of all, we have to understand that there's a difference between sanctioning something or approving of something and regulating something. We see an example of that, for, for example, in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus was talking about divorce. And they asked him, well, wait a minute, Moses said, give her a certificate of divorce and dismiss her and so on and so forth. He said, look, because of the hardness of your heart, God permitted that. But from the beginning, that was not so. So that, that's an example of God not condoning something, per se, or prescribing something. In fact, it tells us in Malachi, God hates divorce, but he regulated it, and it was in connection with the hardness of the, the, the hearts of men. So th that's just one sense in saying that, let's say it, it, it wasn't ideal, but God decided to regulate it. You have that example. But the problem is, is when people speak about slavery, they're often thinking of it in the context of the 18th, 19th century West African slave trade, where people were kidnapped, taken captive against their will, brought to new nations, uh, treated subhuman, in fact, considered in some instances by law as not being human, uh, mistreated, subjugated, uh, involuntarily. Th that's what we think of when we think of slavery. But you have to understand in the biblical context, uh, that, that wasn't what was going on. Uh, and another aspect of the slavery we, we see in those contexts is that it was racially based. That wasn't the case in, in, in biblical times. In fact, in Exodus chapter 21, we see that kidnapping and selling people was a crime punishable by death. So we're talking about two different things. We're talking about a system under which there was uh, an economic mechanism available to those who wanted to get out of debt. And so there was that aspect of it where it was voluntary uh, servitude, so to speak. And, and even in the biblical context, you'll see prescribed to the children of Israel under a theocratic system, and let me make that clear, that basically they would serve under terms where they would be uh, a servant for about six years and then they'd be set free on the seventh year. And then they had the opportunity if they wanted to continue with uh, their master. And so it's important to understand that. It, was, it wasn't racially based, it was voluntary, uh, in most cases. Of course, you had slavery in the context of war uh, to, to keep uh, those that, that were uh, vanquished from rebellion and so forth. And so it's important to understand it in, in those different contexts. Uh, and people were able to come out of that sort of 
uh, sure. arrangement as well. And then you have Philemon, and you have obviously sure. you have Philemon, Paul telling him to treat him right. to treat him as a brother, exactly, uh, and so on and so forth. And so and and look, even in, if you look at Deuteronomy uh, twenty three, you see a context there where if if a slave leaves uh, flees from their master, presumably uh, under abuse, that that they're not to be returned to him, and they're not to be mistreated or oppressed. And so th there's so many different things. Th there are regulations in there too for, for how uh, a, a slave would be treated and if they were abused, what the consequences would be for the master and so on and so forth. So we just have to understand that these are different contexts. And we have to understand that the Bible is not primarily concerned with social reform. It's concerned with spiritual transformation, which often can have an impact on social reform, of course. But there, there are different situations and contexts that are different than the ones that we're in today. Right. And, and also, this wasn't something that was prescribed as a mandatory thing for all nations. This was a theocracy. This was how God was regulating and dealing with his people at that well, time. And, and they, they love to sort of seize on it because Leviticus and Deuteronomy are difficult books. There are sure. things that are hard to understand. And so if you can say, well, God condoned this, this, and that, then the Bible's horrible and nobody should read it sure. because you know these are horrible things. Right. And so you mentioned Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 22 is where you have atheists pointing and saying, well, look, the Bible condones rape. Yeah. And so this is another tough one. Sure. So you want to speak to that one? I would love to speak to that one. Uh, in fact, when you, when you look closely at Deuteronomy 22, you, you realize that it has nothing to do with that at all. Of course, in the context there, you're, you're looking at first God talking about any woman uh, who is betrothed or married and who was forced into uh, a sexual predicament. And the, the penalty for that was death. There was no question whatsoever. Then we get to the verses that you're referring to, and, and there we see the NIV translating that word there as rape. But if you look at most other translations, it gives the idea of laying hold of and, and lying with. And the words that are used there are used in other places where you don't have the context of rape going on. And if you notice in that verse, it says that if they are found out. So the perception is that this is talking about a woman who was raped, but when you look at the, the words that were used, when you look at the context of the entire thing, you come to realize that that's, a, that's actually not what was going on because it says they were found out. So what you have there is a situation of someone who was consensually entering into a sexual relationship with someone, and then they're discovered. And then, in order to protect them in a social sense, this man now was obligated to, to pay the bride price, and then he was also obligated to take her as wife. But when you look at what I would call really almost a parallel passage in Exodus 21, it talks about that in there, but it talks about the father being willing to give her in marriage, and that he could refuse that, and that was an option as well. So I think when you look at the whole context, you come to realize this isn't talking about rape. This is talking about consensual sex, but with a, an unmarried individual versus someone who was married and the death penalty was enforced for that. So you have a, uh, a consensual sexual relationship between a, a young lady who's unmarried and a man, and now he not only has to do what's socially acceptable in that time and pay the bride price, uh, marry her, of course, if the father's accepting, but he can never divorce her. So it's like, hey, suddenly paradigm shift, this guy's getting away with it, you could just go sleep with any lady, rape her, now, you know, and now she has to marry you. No, 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 it's consensual, and now this guy doesn't get off the hook. He has to follow the social norms and be responsible. 
And if the father forbids it, then he can't marry her. If he right. does marry her, he can't even divorce her. Well, this is why you need so much context and understanding sure. you know, of, of all of this, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the big things that atheists also struggle with when it comes to the New Testament is why? Why, if God is God, why couldn't he have just forgiven sin? Why did he need to send Jesus and come into human form and die this bloody death on a cross? Why did all this have to happen? It seems so needless and silly. That's what they'll say. Yeah. You know what blows me away, Billy, when people start to pose these things, which they would view as contradictions or as unreasonable or as illogical. Typically, they're doing it, again, from a naturalistic standpoint, which postulates that we're basically the byproducts of random chance. We live in an accidental universe, right? Where, again, morality is relative. Morality is relative until they don't like something, right? And so now they're talking about logic. They're talking about reason. They're talking about things that are, uh, uh, untenable for them and yet the question is is how do you account in a naturalistic universe where everything is material in a sense how do you account for transcendent laws of logic and reason and ethics and morality and so on and so forth well the atheist can't but the Christian can so my answer to that question is why would God have to well the bottom line is that God reigns supreme he's a creator of the heavens and the earth and he <laughs> made this universe so he dictates how the universe functions. And God cannot violate his nature. God is a just God. And this is a validation of Christianity that demonstrates that it's not man-made. Because if it was man-made, it would be exactly like that. Okay, you've sinned, I forgive you, it's over. <laughs> but God is just. That's a good point. <laughs> right? God is just. He must deal with sin. You should expect some complication with things that are transcendent and not man-made. And so the bottom line is that God is just. Because God is just, God must deal with sin. And at the same time, God is merciful. God is gracious. So how can he be both at the same time? Well, we find the culmination of that in the cross. God demonstrated his justice by punishing sin, by taking the sins of mankind and placing them on Christ and then punishing those sins on Christ. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So on the cross, he bore our sins. God demonstrated his justice. He didn't just wink at sin. He didn't just let it go and say, okay, no big deal. I'm just going to wipe it out. He dealt with it. And by the same token then extended grace because Christ took it in our place so that now God can give us forgiveness, mercy, and grace. And Christ having taken our sin can now impute to us his perfect righteousness. So that when God sees us, he sees us clothed in Christ, and that allows us now to enter his kingdom. Wow, that's a great, that's a great response to it, right? So, so the last question now, and this is another one of those difficult gotcha questions, sure. would, be, would be the stoning issue, right? Sure. That, you know, in the Old Testament, how does a loving God who's consistent in love across, because, you know, right. they, they see, a lot of atheists see God as this angry, mean monster in the Old Testament, yeah. and suddenly kind of a nice guy in their eyes, you yeah. know, in the New Testament. But the idea of stoning people for different things, children who don't behave, you know, sure. lots of different issues. Yeah. Um, why was that okay then? Why is that not okay now? Absolutely. And so how would you, what would sure. you say? Sure. Well, again, I would remind everyone that when you're reading the Old Testament, you're, you're reading laws that were prescribed to a theocratic nation. God was establishing a nation, and as its ruler, he was prescribing laws under which it was to be governed. Now, it's important to understand that 
that's not something that is prescribed for the world at large. And in fact, under the New Testament era, we recognize that we're no longer under law. And so it's important to see that in the law, you had the ceremonial aspect of the law, you had the civil aspect of the law, and you had the moral aspect of the law. Now, we could look at certain moral aspects of the law, such as the sin of homosexuality, the sin of adultery, bestiality is dealt with in there. Uh, you, you have all sorts of things that are, that are covered. Now, those cross over, and, and those are for all time and for all people. Now, sometimes you have some crossover with the moral and the civil, the punishments that were prescribed by God under that theocratic rule. And so that was completely acceptable. See, the problem, Billy, is that people want to create God in their own image. That's the first and greatest sin, right? We, wanna, we want to create God in our own image and then judge God on the basis of that image we've created. God is God. He rules in the heavens, and he cannot violate his nature. So yes, in that time, God's prescribed punishment for homosexuality and a whole other host of sins was capital punishment. And it was perfect, it was holy, and it was just. And it was a manifestation of his love because love cannot tolerate wickedness. All of us would look at a judge today who would look at massive crimes committed by someone and see that judge rule with judgment and punishment. Uh, we would look at that and say, yeah, that's a good judge. But on the flip side, if we were to see a judge look at someone who committed crimes and say, you know what, I'm a good loving judge, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna let that person go. We'd say, that's not a good and loving judge. That's a corrupt judge, because a good and loving judge would see to it that justice is done. And so under the New Testament era, we even see as a point to make that that wasn't the mindset. You could look at, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it talks about who the people that Paul is addressing were before they came to Christ. And in there, he deals with homosexuality and other sins. And then he says, and such were some of you. He's not saying, look, you committed these sins, so now we need to stone you because he understands the context and the purpose of the law under that theocratic rule. And so I see no contradiction there whatsoever. You see a sovereign, supreme God who was dealing with sin as he saw fit, and it was perfectly just because how do we determine justice, again, without an ultimate authority, without transcendent moral values? <clears throat> and where do you get those in a random accident chance universe. And once, and once Christ came, you had this difference where the, mo the moral law seems to carry over. Exactly. But the civil and ceremonial passes That's away. That's right. Absolutely. Right. Those, those, those serve their purpose for the nation of Israel, but the moral law of God transcends that and is for all people and for all time. Well, thank you. You, you tackled a bunch of the most <laughs> difficult got you questions, and I, and I appreciate that. It's a pleasure. And again, you know, we can, we can fight against God all that we want. Um, it's kind of like a person denying the existence of air while they draw it into their lungs to do so. You cannot have any standard by which to just judge what is just, what is right, what is good without God. He is the <laughs> ultimate authority. Otherwise, if it's relative, anything goes, and you can't say anything, really. Well, someone tweeted at me the other day, an atheist, and they said, well, you know, I'm going to raise my kids to be good people, and, you know, and, and you're going to see. And it's like, well, <laughs> you'll be doing that based on his standards, to a degree, on right. standards that have been set up in culture. If you 
go that route yeah. that God gave you. So you're kind of using his, you know, you're denying that he's there, but you're kind of using some of the things that he gave you because like you're saying, what's the, what is right and wrong, right? Exactly. Without a source of it. Right. You have so. to have a, you have to have a transcendent authority or else you're the authority. And if you're the authority, everyone can be their own authority. Which is terrifying. Which is ter very terrifying. But that's what's happening in culture right now. Absolutely. That's what we're watching happen in front of us right yeah. now. It, it's only just starting. Right. <laughs> so. It's just the beginning. It's and we're, we're seeing it. And, and it's, it's manifesting itself in the most insane, unthinkable ways that people sent decades ago would have said no way. But Five years ago, they might have said no way. True. But because of the logic, it, it's happening. And you have to let it happen. Otherwise, now you're contradicting yourself. Well, and you've got, you've got Generation Z, the most destitute, depressed, medicated, and these are kids. Right. I'm um, disconnected, detached generation yet, and a good chunk of that, you wonder, is that coming from the worldview that we're delivering to them yeah. and giving them? Yeah, so. it is, absolutely. Ideas have consequences. And as Christ said, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Well, thank you, Easy. This has been great. It's been a pleasure. And this brings us to the end of the Pure Flix podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Make sure you check out Answering Atheists. It's our series over on Facebook. It's facebook.com backslash pureflix. We run the Answering Atheist series on Thursday nights. You can check that out. Also, be sure to head over to insider.pureflix.com for more daily inspiring content. Tune in next week for another episode of the Pure Flix podcast. That's all for today's podcast. You can follow PureFlix on Facebook at facebook.com slash PureFlix and on Twitter at PureFlix. And be sure to log on today to pureflix.com for your free month of access to thousands of faith and family-friendly movies and TV shows. Thanks for listening to the PureFlix podcast.